0: If you join me in Bible study today, please open up your Bibles to the book of Zechariah chapter 8. This is one of my favorite chapters in Zechariah. It's one that's being fulfilled before our very eyes. If you look around the room, we are a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 8 verse 23. But, we begin today at verse... Six. Thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? End times prophecy. And it's looking at the day of the Lord and what Messiah is going to do during that seven year tribulation period. And Lord of hosts, you know what Lord is. Host means all armies. It's the word for the armies. So it's the Lord leading armies in judgment. And he says it is marvelous or wonderful in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days. If it's marvelous in their eyes, it will also be marvelous in my eyes. What he's saying is that if you think back to what God did in Egypt, How he brought the ten plagues upon the Egyptians, led the people out, parted the Red Sea. That the miraculous deliveries God's going to do in the tribulation period far outseeds it. That it's going to overshine it. That his miraculous deliverance, if you think about Ezekiel chapter 38, the battle of Gog and Magog, how does it end? God himself appears and ends it. And it's going to end with the destruction of the armies of most of the world that have come against Israel. It harkens back to where God destroyed the army of Assyria in one night. How many people? 185,000 in one night. The Israeli army didn't have to lift a finger. That's the way the battle of Gog and Magog is going to end. And that's just a precursor to what's going to happen at Armageddon. And it says, will it also be marvelous in my eyes? Do you see that? The Hebrew says, it will be. Not will it be, it will be. That God is going to see his intervention as marvelous and wonderful because it leads to the deliverance of the children of Israel. It brings an end to the reign of the false messiah. It brings an end to Satan's influence in this world as he gets cast into the pit. For how long? For the rest of the millennial kingdom, right? For a thousand years, it says. So it will be marvelous in the eyes of the people that are being delivered, but it's also going to be marvelous in the eyes of God. It was God who cast the people into captivity, and it's God who will bring them home. He will bring them home because they have done what? Repented. You want to see God marvel and and just take great joy in something. Let him see the children of Israel repent and come back to him. You can literally picture in your mind and see the tears flowing down his face as his beloved comes home. Where does it give us that great picture really? Go back to Hosea. Hosea, Hosea chapter five describes the captivities, all three of them: the Assyrian, the Babylonian, and the Roman. Why doesn't it foreshadow and prophesy about the Egyptian captivity? Because that point is history; it's already gone. So, verse fourteen: For I will be like a lion to Ephraim; Ephraim is the northern kingdom of Israel. They went into captivity in Assyria in 722 BCE. What does a lion do? It doesn't just kill its prey. It tears and scatters. So it's talking about tearing and scattering the northern kingdom and sending them to captivity. And why did God do that? Because he's a mean old God? No, because because they were pagan idolaters. Why did God cast the Amorites out of the land? Because they were pagan idolaters. It's not that God prefers one people over another. He says, in my land, you're going to worship me. Next phrase says, like a young lion to the house of Judah. That's the Babylonian captivity. Young lion, because it's 120 years later. But also, the people were not scattered so far or for so long. The Assyrian captivity is still going on today. The Babylonian captivity was only 70 years. Why 70 years? Did God just pick a number out of the air That's the number of Sabbath years they refuse to keep. Does sin have consequences? It does. So God sent the Messiah. And as a whole, the nation rejected him. Not every individual, but the nation as a whole. So it says, even I will tear them and go away. I'll take them away and no one shall rescue. That's the Roman diaspora that began in 70 common era, 70 A.D., And when it says, and no one shall rescue, it means it will not end until God calls the people to come home. And of course, you have to go back to the 1800s to find Theodore Herzl and the first Zionist Congress. And then in 1917, the first Aliyah, and then 1948, Israel becomes a nation. We're seeing these fulfilled in our lifetimes. Verse 15, where's Messiah? Psalm 1 says... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand so to make your enemies your footstool. says, I'll return again to my place. That's where he is. And he'll stay there till when? Till they acknowledge their offense, which means till they repent. That's exactly right. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. What is the affliction? The That's the tribulation period. That's the time that Zechariah is writing about that those great miraculous things are going to happen. When Israel repents and turns to the Lord, then the enemies of Israel better look out. Wayne. Yes, ma'am. Are they starting to repent now, do you think? I saw a picture they of are. praying at the western wall, and it was
1: just packed full. Even up and around on the tops of buildings
0: surrounding it. Right. Praying. In 1992, you couldn't find a Messianic congregation. You couldn't find blue in the Zitzit. Go to Israel now and there's Messianic congregations everywhere. And there's blue in the Zitzit all over the city. Yes, the people are starting to repent. In Ezekiel 37, it said it would really come to fruition and begin in 1967. And that's when the Messianic movement exploded. They say before 1967, there may have been 2,000 Jewish people in the world that were believers. How many now? You can see many more than that in the great field halls at Messiah College every July at the Messiah Conference. As Jewish believers come in from all over the world and the stadium is just packed full. It's amazing. So chapter 6 verse 1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord. Return means to repent. Yes, it's ongoing. Is it, has it reached its zenith yet? The answer is no. What's that, Edmund? Uh, you,
2: you know, you were saying about uh, idolatry and being uh, sent away and brought back. It's there in in Deuteronomy four twenty five to to thirty. Yes, exactly that. Yeah. That as you once you've been in the land a while, it says, uh, if I may read it. Go ahead. It says, when you Father, children, and children's children, and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that you will utterly perish from the land that you're going over the the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, you'll be utterly destroyed, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. And you will be left few in number among the nations where the lord will drive you and there you will serve gods of wood and stone the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell but from there you will seek the lord your god and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and all your soul when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you, or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them.
0: Acts 25 to 31, Deuteronomy 4. Beautiful. And Deuteronomy 30 describes the process. There's many different prophecies, many of which we will look at today. That says, yes, Israel's going to go into captivity, but they're going to repent. They're going to come back to God. What were those words? With all their heart and with all their soul. If you look at the land of Israel today, does the entire land show that? No. Are there many individuals? Yes. And the number is growing. So back to Hosea 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. That refers back to the prophecies that God would cast us into captivity for our sin. But when we repent, God will bring us back and bless us beyond measure. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. Bind us up means to bandage us, to comfort us, to heal our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. What's a day to the Lord? Thousand years. How long has Israel been cast out? About 2,000 years. After two days he'll revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know. Let us know what? The knowledge of God. The commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. It's Hosea chapter 4 verse 6 that tells us. That's referring to the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Okay, let's go back to Zechariah chapter 8 verse 6. How many times does God use the phrase the Lord of hosts in that one verse? Twice. Does that give you an idea when it's going to be ultimately fulfilled? There may be a minor fulfillment when they return from Babylon, but the ultimate fulfillment is in the day of the Lord in the tribulation period. Verses 7 and 8 go together, so let me read them together, then comment together. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east. Well, that's Babylon in those areas. If it stopped there, we would say, Gee, this is only talking about the return from the Babylonian captivity, but it doesn't stop there. It says, and from the land of the west. If you return from the land of the east and the land from the west, you have returned from all the places they've been scattered. That hasn't happened yet. It's in the process, but it's not completed until Messiah returns. So we're definitely talking about day of the Lord prophecy. He says, I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Does anybody recognize those words, they shall be my people and I will be their God? Let's go back to Exodus 19. This is the covenant. Exodus chapter 19. We looked at it last night, we'll look at it again this morning. Exodus chapter 19, we'll begin in verse 5. The covenant is not the commandments of chapter 20 and following. Covenant is a set of promises that make up a contract. Mutual promises. Verse 5, now therefore if, what does the word if mean? There's a condition. If you will indeed, meaning actually do it, obey my voice, shemabakoli, that is to do what I tell you to do and keep my covenant. Then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people laid lay before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. That is the acceptance of the covenant. That is the promise of the people. Is it just the Jewish people or is it all the people? The the physical children of Israel and the mixed multitude grafted in. It's all of them. I got a question out here. Let me see what it is. Number one. um, Where are we at? At the moment we're in Exodus chapter 19 starting in verse 5. So Moses brought... Back the words of the people to the Lord. That's the covenant. God said, if you will do what I tell you to do, then you shall be a special people, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. And what did the people say? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Then what are the commandments that follow? These are the instructions in righteousness to prove that your faith is real. You said you would do what I tell you. I'm telling you now, will you do it or won't you do it? That's not all.
1: Yes, ma'am. Is this the uh, the covenant? Is this like the ketubah, the marriage contract?
0: Yep, this is exactly what the Torah is. is a marriage contract. The Ketubah, the marriage contract, says this is what the husband will do for the bride and this is what the bride will do for the husband. God made promises to us and we need to make and keep our promises to him. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 to look in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Are we there? 2 Corinthians chapter 6 beginning in verse 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. Here's the key. I will be their God and they shall be my people. What's the next word? Therefore. Do you see how I will be their God and they shall be my people is from Exodus 19. It's from the covenant. And what was the people's side of the covenant? Then we will be obedient to what you command us. So look at verse 17, That therefore. Therefore, come out from among them, the unbelievers, the idolaters, the unclean, the lawless ones. And be separate, says the Lord. What separates us from the world? Are keeping at God's commandments. Do not touch or cling to what is unclean. And I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters. Says the Lord Almighty. This is just a refreshing of our minds. Of what the covenant is. Verse 1 of chapter 7 says. Therefore having these promises. That we will be the people of God. He will be our God. He will be our father. We will be his sons and daughters. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, God has kept his part of the covenant. Now we need to keep our part. If you think back to Exodus 19, remember the if then? If we don't keep our part of the covenant, is God obliged to keep his part? The answer is no. Let's look also at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. We don't often think about the fact that Paul is talking about the covenant, but he is. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. These are the words of the new covenant. Or I prefer to say the renewed covenant. For this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Do you see the same words from the covenant from Exodus chapter 19?
1: No,
0: there's no if. There isn't an if. That's right. But he's going to write his laws upon our heart. And what does he expect us to do? When we obey them. And the reason there's no if is at that point, if you're saved by faith, you're obedient out of love, right? Yeah. It's no longer, do you want to keep them or don't you? If you're saved by faith and they're written on your heart, you do them because you want to do them. It's the desire of your heart because you love the Lord our God. But you see those same words, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Same we saw in Exodus 19 and we saw in 2 Corinthians 6. So at that point, I want to really start digging deep into this. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah 24 (laughs) verses 4 to 7 oops we got two questions out there now doesn't this repudiate new covenant theology Uh, I would say of course yep The idea that, well, let me just try and explain it this way. There have been a lot of questions this week about new covenant. Why do you call it renewed covenant? We all know what the word new means in English. Well, do we? Is there every month a new moon? What did God do with the old one? Where has God stored the new moon for every month from the beginning of creation till this month? It's the same old moon. moon. Then why do we call it a new moon? It's new to us. us. We're experiencing experiencing it freshly. We're experiencing it as if it's new. Like when you go down to a new car lot, buy a new car, and you tell all your friends, here, look at my new car. Then you go to a used car lot and buy a used car and you tell all your friends what? Look at my new car. Well, it's not brand new, but it's new to me. That's the kind of new that we're using with the new covenant. The word kainos instead of neos. Neos means new in time. Kainos means new in character and freshness. Okay. Jeremiah 24 verse 4. Hopefully that helps. If it doesn't help, hopefully it doesn't hurt. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, what's that word saying? It's a quote. These from the lips That's of quote. God, so it has to be correct. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. He's talking about those when God said, go, they said, okay, Lord, then we'll go. For I will set my eyes on them for good and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down. I'll plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me. That's the new covenant. That I am the Lord and they shall be my people. And I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. When when they return to me with their whole heart. What does John fourteen fifteen say? If you love me, comma, keep my commandments. If you've returned to the Lord with your whole heart, you've decided, I will now be obedient. I will worship the Lord our God and no other. I will listen to and obey the Lord our God and no other. Look at Jeremiah 31. Before we look at verse 33 again, I want you to see the context in verses 1 through 6. Jeremiah 31, verses 1 through 6. At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. What time? What are we talking about? we got to read on for context. Thus says the Lord, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when I went to give him rest, the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. What's that mean, an everlasting love? Doesn't God hate the Jews? Isn't that what you hear all the time from, well, never mind. No, he doesn't hate the Jews. It's an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt. Does that sound like maybe or might? No. No. O virgin of Israel, you shall again be adorned with your tambourines and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. Notice he forgot to call it the West Bank. It's Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food, for there shall be a day when the watchman will cry and mount to Arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. So we're talking about a time when Israel does what? Repents and comes back to God with their whole heart. And this is the chapter that has the new covenant. So just look at verse 33 to refresh ourselves. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. What has happened? Israel has repented. And God renews the covenant. I will put my law, the word there is Torah. There's no confusion. It's the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. If they were not going to keep God's commandments, would he still say, I'll be their God and they'll be my people? The answer is no. The fact that he says unconditionally, I will be, means they will repent. They will turn back to God. They will be obedient, as God tells us again and again. Let's go to Jeremiah 32. May not even have to turn the page, but it's verse 37. So for me, I have to turn the page. 37 to 39. Behold. Does behold mean something irrelevant following is shut your mouth and listen. Something really important is for coming. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I've driven them. What do we read in Zechariah from the east and from the west? From all countries. Where I've driven them in my anger, my fury, and in great wrath. Why was he angry, full of fury, and full of great wrath? Because they were pagan idolaters. They turned their backs on God. He says, I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Is that not the promise of the covenant in Exodus 19? So how have the people changed? They have repented and turned back to God. That's right. Verse 39. Then I will give them one heart and one way what is that one way John fourteen six. I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to God except by me this is they're saved by faith that they may fear me forever that means they will be obedient forever now you see why he says in verse 38 they shall be my people and I will be their God God didn't leave us, we left God. And God says, please come home. And it goes on to say, for the good of them and their children after them. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 11. The scripture is full of God's calling us to repent and come back to him, to love him, to put our faith in him, to follow him. I see. There's number one out there, and go to Meetingland. Let's see. It says someone has their mic on. Okay. Let's see if I can. Okay, everybody, muted it again. What was I? Ezekiel chapter 11. That's where I was, starting in verse 17. Therefore, uh oh, we have to say, what's it there for? Look at verse 16. I've cast them off into the Gentiles. I send Israel into captivity. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples. What peoples? The nations where they've been scattered. Assemble you from the countries where you've been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. Somebody needs to tell our government that. Okay. Anyway, verse 18. And they will go there, and they will take away all its detestable things. Are they going to be having ham sandwiches and shrimp cocktails? No. And all its abominations from there. The idols are all going away. Then I will give them one heart, meaning the heart to love the Lord our God. And I'll put a new spirit within them. That's the Holy Spirit, the promise of the new covenant. And take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That, here's why he does it. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I'm looking for a place where it says they can continue in their sins and I'll be their God and they'll be my people. I haven't found that yet, have you? So we're going to keep looking. Verse 21, but as for those whose hearts follow the desire for their detestable things and their abominations, that is those who refuse to repent, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. Are they going to be part of the Messianic kingdom? They are not. Are they going to be part of the new heavens and new earth? They are not. Their part is in the lake of fire. Verse That's enough for that one. Let's go on to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. Verse 18. Ezekiel 37 is about what? About the regathering of Israel back from the nations. And instead of doing the first 17 verses, I thought we'd just go to the interpretation. So starting in verse 18. And when the children of your people speak to you, you being Ezekiel, saying, will you not show us what you mean by these things? That is, why are you putting sticks together and they become trees, etc.? Say to them, thus says the Lord God... What's it actually say in Hebrew? Thus says, my Lord, the Lord. Surely. What does surely mean? It's going to happen. I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim. That was the northern kingdom that went into captivity in 722 BCE. And the tribes of Israel, his companions. That's the ten northern tribes. We call them what today? The ten... Lost tribes, because we don't know where they are. But yeah, God does. Driving.
1: You
0: what? Think I'm driving. Carry your mic so and will- Okay. Yeah. Now, let me just make sure everybody's muted. Okay, we're in Ezekiel 37, uh, verse 19. Saying to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I'll take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I'll join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. The sticks actually are trees. Trees represent a kingdom, a throne of authority. And at the death of Solomon, the ten northern tribes were given to one king, and Judah in the south was given to the son of Solomon. And God says, they've been separate ever since then, but separate no more. I'm going to put the two kingdoms back together into one. And who's going to be king? Messiah will be. Verse 20, the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. This is the regathering from the east and west that we saw in Zechariah. And I'll make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations. Nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. What do we know about Messiah's throne? And the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Verse 23, they shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I shall be their God. Notice those words again. If God is once more going to be their God and they're going to be his people, what are they going to be? Obedient. Repentant. They're going to follow him. Verse 24. David, my servant, shall be king over them. They shall all have one shepherd. Does that make you think of John chapter 10, verse 16? It should. Who's that shepherd? Messiah. They also shall walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. See, God has a sense of humor. He knows if he just said, observe my statutes, somebody would just look at him. He said, no, 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 don't just look at him do them. Then they shall dwell in the land which I have given to Jacob my servant where your fathers dwelt and they shall dwell there. They their children and their children's children. How long? Forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover I will make a covenant of peace with them. What is that covenant of peace? That's the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. What does everlasting mean? It'll never end. But notice the covenant is that I will be their God and they shall be my people. And on their part it's we will obey. I will establish them, multiply them, I'll set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. That means my dwelling. I will dwell in their midst. Isn't that what 2 Corinthians chapter 6 had to say? Yes. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. But notice, it took Repentance. When does all Israel get saved as Paul said in Romans eleven twenty six, is in the tribulation period. That's why Messiah can return and establish the kingdom. He said in Matthew 23 you'll see me no more till you say Baruch is Shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They will cry out for him and he will come.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But does God hear the prayer of those who will not hear the Torah? No, that's Proverbs 28, 9. So they will have repented and turned their ear back to the Torah. And when they cry out for God, the enemies of Israel are in deep trouble. I would then have gone to 2 Corinthians six sixteen and Hebrews eight ten, but we already did that. So let's move on. Back to Jeremiah, because there's a word I want you to see. It's Zechariah. Never mind it's Jeremiah. Zechariah. We do Jeremiah on Fridays. Zechariah on Saturdays. At the end of verse 8. They shall be my people and I will be their God in truth. Let's go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 verse 142. Psalm 119, verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. What does that mean? Will it ever change? Will God ever change His mind on what He wants? No. And your law is is truth that word law there is Torah so make a note number one Torah is truth number two is Psalm 119 verse 160 the entirety of your word is truth so what portion of God's word will fail what portion will he change what portion will he decide is irrelevant None of it. It says, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. This is not number three, but turn back a couple pages to Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Christian theology is based on the idea that God changes his mind. That for a while God wanted this, he doesn't want that anymore, now he wants this, tomorrow he'll want something else. What does the scripture say? Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Is it going to change? No. This is also not number three, but go to Psalm 89, Verse 34. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. When God speaks a word, will it ever change? No. So to say God changed his mind. And don't do what he commanded before stop that do what you command me to do today is to say that God is not true to his word Now here's number 3 you've been waiting for it go to John 17 John 17 John 17 verse 17 John chapter 17 verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Wait a minute. Didn't it say that in the Old Testament? You mean the Old Testament and the New Testament agree? Yes it does. And then add to it John fourteen verse six John fourteen six Yeshua said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then add one more, first John five six. First John five six. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Yeshua the Messiah. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. If the Torah is truth, the entirety of God's word is truth. The Holy Spirit is truth. Yeshua is truth. Can they disagree with each other? How many truths can there be? Just one. It means their message must be the same. So to say Messiah came to change God's law is to say that the two truths disagree with each other. That would be confusion. Is God a God of confusion? He is not. So the Torah, the entire oh, the Word what? of God, the Holy Spirit, and Messiah must all agree. Yes, Rachel? Uh, Hebrews 13.8 13,
1: also be a good one.
0: Let's look at Hebrews 13.8. I'm sure it would be or you wouldn't have brought it up. Well, let's look. Hebrews 13.8. Hebrews 13.8 says, Yeshua the Messiah is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's a good one. Add to it Matthew 24. Is it verse 35? Let's go look. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, yes, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away But my words will by no means pass away. Means it can't change. If it's been settled forever in heaven, it can't change. All right, back to Zechariah chapter 8, verse 8. It was not just in truth, but also in righteousness. If the Torah is truth and righteousness is the opposite of lawlessness, will they be my people and I will be their God if they walk in sin? They walk in lawlessness? He tells us to depart. He tells us to depart. Well, let's start back in Genesis. Let's go back to Genesis 15 and we're going to work up to that verse. You're right, Daniel. Daniel. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Righteousness is obeying the commandments of God. We learn that first in Genesis 15, verse 6. Referring to Abraham. Let's start in verse one so we understand the context of verse six. See, I see a number one out there. Let me check it while you're turning. So says, see John five eight. So as you're turning Genesis, don't turn to John five eight. I will. And let me read it. John five eight says So as Yeshua said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. I must have read the note wrong. No, I think I put the, the verse wrong. If you, when we were talking about in, in John, um, 1 John 5, 6. Ah, you meant 1 uh, John 5. Down, okay. Yeah, if you go down 3, they talk about the 3 being the same. That's my only point. Gotcha. Okay, it was First John chapter 5, verse 8. Okay, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Avram, that's Abraham before God changes his name, in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abraham, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Avram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word Lord came to him saying, this one, that's Eliezer of Damascus, shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. How is Abraham? He's old. How is Sarah? She's old too. Then he brought them outside. He brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. He said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord. In the rest of the Bible, they just say he believed the Lord. Sometimes there's a bait that's attached to a verb that doesn't get translated. So he believed the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. That word believed is ha'amin, H-E, apostrophe, E-M-I-N. And it's the verb from which we get the word amen. So he believed the Lord means God spoke. And Abraham believed that God would do exactly what he said he would do. And the Lord said, he accounts it to him for righteousness. Go to Deuteronomy six, verse twenty five. Deuteronomy six, verse twenty five. You got to realize what we're saying here does not match up with traditional church theology, right? You realize that. But it is what the Bible says. Deuteronomy 6.25 Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So when we believe God and obey his commandments... It says it will be righteousness for us. Do you see those words? In my Bible, it said these commandments, but the Hebrew says this commandment. Because God in Deuteronomy 6 takes all the commandments and says it's one. Look at how Deuteronomy six one reads. Now this is the commandment. So all of it together, all of the Torah is the commandment. Okay, we'll do that. Let's go to Genesis 26. Genesis 26. In Genesis 15, verse 6, God accounted it to Abraham for righteousness, right? Chapter 26 of Genesis explains this a little farther. Somebody asked, what is the relationship of Eliezer to Abraham? He's a servant born in Abraham's house. He's not a relative, he's a servant. So Genesis chapter 26. God is actually speaking to Isaac, the son of Abraham. Starting in verse 2. says, now the Lord appeared to him, that's Isaac, and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. What's the next word? Because. Abraham obeyed my voice. And kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. A lot of theologians will say, that's inconsistent. That in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and God accounted him for righteousness. So, why does God talk about the fact that he obeyed him? Because they're not understanding what it means to believe. To believe. To believe is, God said it. That's it. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Let's go to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5.
1: Wasn't a good example of uh, Abraham showing his obedience when God told him to take Isaac and he said that
2: now
0: I know. Yep. Yep, in Genesis 22, now I know. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Yes, it is, Rachel. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. I saw a line somewhere that said,
2: um, faith is ongoing obedience.
0: <laughs> I would have to agree with that. Of course, I may have posted that. You never <laughs> know. I've gone back onto Facebook. So I've been putting things um, up there. Wayne could yes, I ask um, something, of course.
1: Um, did Abraham repent then for the sins he did? Of course. Okay, because he—I remember several things um, yeah. that he didn't obey. He right, didn't obey.
0: But so. then he repented. Okay. He We've repented. all fallen short. Okay. That includes Abraham. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Matthew chapter 5 verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. That means those who want righteousness as opposed to lawlessness. Those who diligently seek it, they shall be filled. Does God want us to chase after righteousness or lawlessness? The answer is righteousness. Matthew 5.20 For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Were the scribes and Pharisees keeping God's commandments? No. Were they teaching others to keep God's commandments? No. We know that from Matthew 15 and Mark 7. So if your righteousness is based on keeping man-made rules and regulations as opposed to the commandments of God, what does God call that? Vanity. Yes, um. On Matthew 5.19. 5, Whoever, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees there, isn't he? Whatever it does and teaches, then we shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For, that continues to explain the verse before. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Which is why I teach shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. doesn't mean they're making it into the kingdom because the next verse explains it in detail.
1: And Pharisees were the standard that people
0: looked at. Yes, scribes and Pharisees were the standards that people looked at. Like what they ascribed to be like. And the Lord said, you go from coast to coast to make a proselyte and you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. Where does he say that? That's in Matthew 23. Go to Matthew 23. So 19 and 20 are
1: together.
0: Yes, 19 and 20 are together. That's why it begins with the word for, which is because... It's explaining, verse 19. Matthew chapter 23. It's on the left-hand side of the left-hand page. Verse 15. Mm-hmm. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, which means one Gentile that converts to Judaism. And when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say making proselytes is bad. It says teaching them to break the commandments is bad.
1: When we follow these teachings that we're teaching, that being taught so often in many of the churches nowadays, we're doing exactly what they were trying to follow: these scribes and Pharisees, and we fall on our face.
0: Yeah, yep. Yeah, we've just replaced the scribes and Pharisees. Haven't we? go to chapter six of Matthew. Matthew 6.33 But seek first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Seeking the righteousness of the Pharisees that's not where we're supposed to be aiming. When the scripture says beware the leaven of the Pharisees it's referring to their bad doctrines. Luke chapter 1 Luke chapter 1 is prophecy. Verses 74 to 76. Spoken by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. When he's filled with the Holy Spirit and tells us in verse 67 he is prophesying. And that prophecy includes verses 74 to 76. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all the days of our life. How does God want us to serve him? In holiness and righteousness. And somebody's going to say, doesn't Hebrews say that without holiness no one will see God? Yes, it does. Verse 76 says, and you child, John the Baptist, not Messiah, you child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. What's it talking about? What did John teach? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That says to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. He called them to repent and then to be baptized. Let's carry on further. Let's go to the book of Acts chapter 10. Yes, sir. in In verse 77 back in Luke 1. Right. If you will not repent, what does the scripture say? Repentance leads to salvation. Yeah. So you cannot you say you're saved, and continue, you say you're you're saved and continue walking in sin, and have God believe it. Right.
1: That's what that's so many false doctrines today are saying that you don't
0: have to repent. Right. So many false doctrines that today say not only that you don't have to repent, but that you can't, because that's a work. That's trying to earn your salvation. Well, what does the Bible say? It says
1: your remission of sins gives you knowledge of salvation.
0: You have to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Right. In Revelation chapter 19, is God looking for a spotless bride or a filthy bride? Spotless bride. Let's go on to Acts chapter 10. Wait a minute. Acts chapter ten says we can eat pigs, right? No, it does not. No, it does not. What does Peter say? God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. He doesn't say God showed me I should not call any pig common or unclean. Acts ten thirty-five, though, is where we are. I'm even going to start in thirty-four because I like thirty-four. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Who does what? Fears him and works righteousness. Find me a verse that says, But in every nation, whoever continues to walk in sin shall be accepted by him. You'll never find it. says right there, God shows no partiality. It's not who you are. It's not how you were born. It's will you repent and follow him out of love and faith. I can show you... Mr.
1: Wayne? Yes, i So sorry to interrupt. In, in those verses there where we're speaking about Cornelius coming to faith, right? I know that he was... Um, he was faithful, and I guess, I'm trying to think of the word that they called him as a Roman citizen. Um, I don't know if you'd call it Torah keeper or what, but he, he was walking in righteousness, and the revelation that Yeshua had come and died and had been resurrection resurrected, it talks about from then he was, if I'm understanding right, he was saved and they were baptized. Right. So. How do we reconcile some of those details? Because he he was I can't think of the word, he was a Torah keeper. uh, but I guess they were But does Torah keeping save you?
0: No. No, Torah keeping does not save you. And he didn't know And that's
1: what I was trying to
0: Yeah. He did not know of Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection. So he couldn't have faith. So he was lacking faith. Faith Without works is dead. Works without faith is useless. Must keep you. out of faith and love. Okay. Let's go on to... Wait, do we finish this? I guess we did. I was starting to say, I can show you more than one verse where Messiah says, go and sin no more. Can you show me one that God says, go and sin again? Answer is no. It's not out there. Romans chapter 4. I want to go through a lot of these scriptures written by Paul because people always say, yeah, but Paul said. Well, you've heard Paul said it, but let's go look and see what Paul actually said. Romans 4.11. This is talking about Abraham. And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. A seal of the righteousness of the faith. Without faith, you cannot have any righteousness. You can keep all the commandments in the world without faith, and that's not righteousness. But if you say you have faith and you don't keep the commandments of God, what does 1 John chapter 2 say? That you're a liar and the truth is not in you. But Susie makes a good point. I don't want people to get the idea that righteousness comes from acts of the law without faith. That's not what I'm saying at all. Romans chapter 5, verses 20 to 21. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord. So the grace of God, which leads to our salvation, leads us to righteousness and eternal life. Because if you say you're saved and you continue to walk in lawlessness, Messiah says I never knew you. And that's not something we want. What verse was that? Which verse? The last one we just read. It was uh, Romans chapter 5 verses 20 and 21. Okay. Yep. And next we're going to go to Romans 6. Verse 1 says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? His answer, certainly not. God forbid, mei whichever way you want to phrase it. How shall we die to sin, live any longer in it? He asked that because he's just said what? That where sin abounded, grace abounded more which is going to cause somebody to think gee then I should sin all I can to show how graceful God can be and Paul says oh no don't you think that way because of verse 16 Romans six sixteen. 16 oops I got some questions out here let's see okay verse 16 do you not know what's he calling them ignorant do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves or servants to obey you are that one's servants whom you obey whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness is Paul talking here to saved people or unsaved he's talking to the saved in the church at Rome and what does he tell them? Does he say, you're saved so you can go sin, it doesn't matter anymore? No. He says, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Do you see how obedience and righteousness are intricately Intertwined. Verse 18 of the same chapter, and having been set free from sin, that you're no longer a slave to sin once you've been saved, you become slaves of righteousness. If you're a slave of righteousness, does that mean you get a choice? Hmm, will I live in sin or will I live in righteousness? The answer is no. If you've been saved, you have become slaves of righteousness. He says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now, what's changed? Why the so now? Because you're you got saved, right? But now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Do you see the relationship between righteousness and holiness? And again, Hebrews says, without righteousness, what? No one will see God without holiness. If righteousness leads to holiness, and holiness is essential to see God, why do we want to sin? That's something that struck me years ago. My sin caused Messiah's death on the tree. Why would I ever want to sin again, knowing what it costs?
1: Hmm.
0: We have to get rid of our selfish nature. Yeah, we do. 1 Corinthians 15, <clears throat> verse
1: 34.
0: <clears throat> Who wrote 1 Corinthians? Paul did. To a Jewish church or a Gentile church? A church that came out of the Gentile world. How do we know 1 Corinthians 12 too, You know that you were Gentiles. But what does he tell them? In no uncertain terms in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 34. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He's talking about some people in the church at Corinth do not know God. They claim to be saved. They claim to be part of the church, but they don't know God. He says, I say this to your shame. But in no uncertain terms, he says what? Awake to righteousness and do not sin. Don't you think that ties right back to Hosea six? Does that tie right back to Hosea six? You know it does. My people perish for lack of knowledge. Exactly right. And then Hosea chapter 6 explains that once we repent and come back to God, it says, let us pursue knowledge. Let us pursue the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Like look at what they were calling knowledge. They were calling the law, the Torah, the knowledge of God. They were calling the Torah the knowledge
1: of God. That's
0: right. And if you have the knowledge of God, right here in verse 34, it says you won't sin. And if you have the knowledge of God, it says do not sin. Well, that's the same thing as John seventeen three, right? To know God is to have eternal life. And first John two verses three and four says if you say you know God and don't keep his commandments, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. All these scriptures, the traditional theologians would say you have to ignore all those because they're contrary to our doctrine. Well, which takes precedence, doctrine or scripture? to me it's scripture. I hope it is for you too. And if, you Timothy, if you think about 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 your doctrine is
1: supposed to be based on
0: scripture. Your doctrine is supposed to be based on scripture. If not that's the error the scribes and the Pharisees of Matthew 15 and Mark 7. Do you see how it all ties together? Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Occasionally somebody says, You keep talking about the same scriptures. Well, we've taught them all from Genesis 1 <laughs> to the end of Revelation. Yeah, yeah, we gotta talk about some of them more than once. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. I want you to see how the Apostle Paul describes the relationship between righteousness and lawlessness. Wow. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What does he mean? What fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness? He means there isn't any. There is none. they are opposites. You can't have both. If you try and do both, that's called what? Lukewarm. And if you read Revelation 3, lukewarm is not good. 2nd Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed which you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. So Paul's prayer is that your righteousness would grow deeper and deeper, more and more, all the time. If you're growing in righteousness, what are you cleaning out of your lives? Sin. That's called sanctification. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But Wayne, didn't Paul say it was okay to sin? No, he doesn't. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15. Let's start in 14. No, let's start in
1: 13.
0: I won't go back to Genesis one, 1 but let's start in 13. For such are false apostles. Talking about false teachers. Just like false pastors of today. Deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Messiah. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So what's he saying about these false teachers? What do they pretend to be? Ministers of righteousness. They tell you they're teaching you the truth, that they're teaching you the scriptures, that they're teaching you the way of God. And what does the Bible say? Their end will be according to their works. Paul should be quoting Matthew chapter 7 because that's what Matthew chapter 7 said. Why are most people who think they're saved on the road to the lake of fire? Because of the false teachers. And Messiah says, how do you know the false teachers? Look at their works. What does the scripture say? If they're teaching you to break God's commandments and doing it themselves, are they leading you in the right direction? No. So if they're teaching you to break God's commandments and to follow their man-made rules and regulations, that was the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees, wasn't it? That in Matthew 5.20, he says, they're not on the way to heaven. So if they're not on the way to heaven, why do you want to follow them? Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 24. In verse 17, Paul says, don't walk anymore like the Gentiles walk." Instead, verse 24, that you put on the new man, that's from Ephesians 2, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. If Paul encourages us to stop walking as the Gentiles walk and to walk in true righteousness and holiness, is that a euphemism for continue in your sin? It's just the opposite, isn't it? How many times does Paul have to tell us, do not sin, before we realize that his message is, don't sin? Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul's still writing. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. Who wrote 1 Timothy? Paul did. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue what? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Did any of that sound like continue walking in sin and God will just have to get over it? Not a bit. Not a bit. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 22. Flee youthful, youthful lusts, but pursue want Righteousness, faith, love, peace, With those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. He could have said pursue lots of things. But what's his first pursuit? Righteousness. Maybe because the Lord said seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added unto you. As Daniel has pointed out. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 tells us that scripture is what comes out of the mouth of God, that which is God-breathed. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Does Paul tell us to follow the scripture, to obey the commandments, to follow the words of God, or to throw them aside? Tells us to follow them. They should be our doctrine. I've told you before, I remember going to the First Methodist Church in Prattville, Alabama because I was invited by the head of the Sunday School Department to come and teach them these things that I'm teaching you. And the pastor stopped me at the door and said, you cannot come in my church I know why you're here. You're going to teach the Bible, and I can't let you do that. He said, our doctrine is not based on the Bible. Mm-hmm. And if you start teaching the Bible, the people are going to start asking questions I don't want to answer. He knew the doctrine is not based on the Bible. Shouldn't that have bothered him? Sure. What does this say? What's our doctrine to be based on? Mm-hmm. Scripture. Go to Hebrews 1.9. God bless you. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 9. Sorry, but I'm going to back up to verse 8. Because a question keeps coming up. And the answer is in verse 8. But to the Son, He says. Who's the He? The He is God. He says to the Son, Your throne, O God. What's he calling Yeshua? God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And of the increase, there'll be no end. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So it says, Messiah has loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. What does First Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11.1 say? Quick, imitate me as I've also imitated Messiah. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6: If we're saved, we should walk. Walk just as he walked. How did he walk? How did he live? He loved righteousness. And hated lawlessness. If you want to be like Messiah, then love righteousness and not lawlessness. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13. After saying in verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, he says in verse 13, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness for he is a babe. In the word of righteousness. What is the word of righteousness? That's Torah. So he says if all you know are these basic elemental principles then you're not spiritually mature. Just a baby. He doesn't say that, does he? <laughs> he says, solid food belongs to those who are of full age. He's telling them to get beyond the basics. One of the elementary principles of chapter 6, verse 1 is repentance <laughs> from dead works and a faith toward God. That's the very foundation right. It was these verses when I first started ministry, I won't tell you how many decades ago, that caused us as a congregation to go, you know, we need to dig deeper in the Bible. How many of you heard as a child, Jesus loves the little children? (laughs) Well, we need to grow beyond that. We need to learn the word. We need to see what God expects of us. And that's why we're doing this. What is that? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. We're going to start in verse 10 and emphasize verse 11. For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he that is the Lord for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. So our parents, oh, disciplined us when we did wrong. But Messiah disciplines us like a father, but it's for our profit, meaning for our good, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Does he chasten people for doing right or for doing wrong? He wants us to stop sinning and instead focus on holiness. Now verse 11 is the key. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you see the relationship in verse 10 between his holiness and our righteousness. Yep. We're almost finished talking about that one verse from Zechariah. But first we have to go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24. First Peter chapter two verse twenty-four. Referring to Messiah says who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So Messiah was crucified for us that we might live for what? For righteousness, not lawlessness. He took our sins upon him. He paid the price so that we could have a clean slate and walk uprightly before God in righteousness. Second Peter chapter 2. Let's see. We've heard Messiah speak on it. We've heard Paul. We've heard John. We're hearing Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Who was the only man who had he and his family come on the ark? Was Noah. In verse 5 it says, And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, that is Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Noah, who was brought onto the ark, was a preacher of what? Righteousness. What was his message to the people? Repent. Did they repent? No. Did they mock him horribly? Yes. That is until they were drowning. Then how many of them? How many of them do you think would then have wanted to climb on the ark? But it was too late. Too late. 2 Peter 2.21 For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. What does the way of righteousness, how does that relate to the holy commandment? They're interchangeable. The way of righteousness is to keep the holy commandment. Can you walk in righteousness without keeping the commandments? The answer is no. 1 John chapter 2. People are thinking, oh no, he's going to talk about verses 3 to 6 again, but no, I'm not. But the mere fact that you thought I would is a good thing. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous... You know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. If you are saved by faith, washed clean in the shed blood of Messiah, how do you practice? You practice righteousness. And if you practice lawlessness, that's Matthew chapter 7, verse 23 Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. This is going to play out there on the internet. I'm going to get all kinds of comments that say, you're teaching heresy. You're a Judaizer. You want to make us all Jews. What am I trying to do to get us to understand what the Bible says and to live it? The word Jew actually means one who worships the true and living God, but we won't argue over definitions. Two more references. 1 John chapter 3 verse 7. Because you're in chapter 2 anyway. 1 John chapter 3. You know verse 4. Sin is lawlessness. But we want to go to verse 7. Little children. Why does John keep saying that? Pete's sake, he's almost 100 years old. Right? Yeah to him we're all little children. Little children, let no one deceive you, which means people will try to deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. What does it mean to practice righteousness? It means to make that your lifestyle. Notice how it's the opposite of Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness you will live a lifestyle of one or the other. Righteousness or lawlessness. It says he who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. And then verse 10 of the same chapter, and then we'll go on. Verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. John says, if you want a quick and easy litmus test, who is a child of God and who's a child of the devil, just look and see. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So what about the scribes and Pharisees who said, don't keep God's commandments, keep ours. Where are they going to fall on this spectrum? The scriptures call them what? children of serpents, children of the devil. Keep your eyes on judgment day when we will all stand before Messiah in judgment. Would you rather hear, depart from me? You who practice lawlessness are well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's go back to Zechariah. I knew that would take a while, but I thought it was important. Verses 9 to 10 talk about the necessity for rebuilding the temple. Verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts. Is that an end times prophecy? Does Israel need to rebuild the temple? They recaptured the Temple Mount in 1967. That was 56 plus years ago. Where's the temple? Where are the people going up to keep the pilgrim festivals? Did God say if they'll keep the three pilgrim festivals that no man would covet their land? They would be safe in the land. They wouldn't have to worry about attacks. Let me tell you a story about Gershon Solomon. I wasn't there, but I've heard him say it so many times. He says when he went on the Temple Mount in 1967, he was part of that first group of Israeli soldiers to go up on the Temple Mount when it was captured. He said an angel appeared to him then and said, it is time to rebuild the temple. 56 years later. Now let's read these words. Verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. It doesn't literally mean strong hands. It means your resolve, your willingness to do. Let your hands be strong. You have been hearing in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets who spoke in the day the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts that the temple might be rebuilt. For before these days, before they began to build the temple of the Lord, there were no wages for man nor any hire for beast. There was no peace from the enemy or for whoever went out or came in. For I set all men everywhere against his neighbor. What does the Lord say? Until you started to rebuild the temple, you were hungry. You were poor, you were attacked, you had no peace, you had no protection. So verses 9 and 10 say, until the temple is rebuilt, don't expect a full blessing from the Lord. Don't expect his hand of blessing in the crops, in the fields, in the protection from the enemies around them. But what happened once they began building the temple? What did God do? He defended the land. He brought prosperity. Let's go look at some corresponding scriptures. Let's go to Haggai chapter 1. The name Haggai doesn't really do the book justice. Everybody say Haggai. Chag means festival. It's the appointed times of the Lord. And the I at the end is plural my. My festivals. So God in the book of Haggai. Relates the rebuilding of the temple. To the feasts and festivals of Leviticus 23. And in verses 3 through 6 says, then the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet saying, you know the word saying means what follows is a quote, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. When you see, thus says Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That's not a veiled threat. There's no veil. That's just a threat. It means repent. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. What is the Lord saying? Why are you not being blessed as you could be? Why are you not being protected from your enemies like you could be? Because you live in nice houses. You think life is good. We don't need God. God says it's not going to stay peaceful. It's not going to stay prosperous. Not until you get on and build the house of God. Same chapter, verses 9 to 11 says, you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins. while well, every one of you runs to his own house. People say, but Wayne, today Israel is so prosperous. If you've been reading the post, there's more than a million of the six million Israeli Jews that live below the poverty line. They're hungry. They don't have enough food. They don't have enough clothes. Why? Let's keep reading. Verse 10. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. That means no rain. How many of you were there in Israel when the Sea of Galilee was down like 80 feet from the way it normally is full? And they had to take the docks and extend them miles. Well, maybe not miles, but it seemed like miles out just to get to some water. Verse 11, for I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. God had blessed the people, and instead of building the temple and praising God, they just got comfortable. So God took away the blessing. Chapter 2 of Haggai. Verses 15 to 19. And now carefully consider from this day forward. From before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days when one came to a heap of twenty ephahs, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to drop fifty baths from the press, there were but twenty I struck you with blight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands. Yes, you did not turn to me, says the Lord. God says, I brought mild judgments and that didn't cause you to turn. So if you don't repent on why on mild judgments, what comes next? Severe judgment. Verse 18 Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, that's the day before Hanukkah. From the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day, I will bless you. What turn from the judgment of God to the blessing? they began to rebuild the temple. I can't help but wonder how long ago Israel would have rebuilt the temple except the United States forbid it. It's a good thing God's not bringing any judgments on the United States. Yeah, okay. Let's go to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. You know, the majority of the people that call themselves the church believe there will never be another temple. They say, Wayne, you're reading those words like they're literal.
1: <laughs>
0: they're not literal. They mean believing God with your heart. Things like that. Somebody's mic's open. Do you have a question? Oh, I see eight out there. Oh, my goodness. Let me go. Mm -mm. Okay, looks like they're all answered. Exodus chapter 34, verse 24. Actually, we have to start in 23. What I write down is the verse of emphasis, not necessarily all the verses. Because I can never make up my mind which ones I want to cover anyway. But verse 23 says, Three times in a year all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel. They can only appear before the Lord if the temple is standing. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. It won't be long until Israel will recognize that our defense is not based upon how many bombs or bullets we have, but it's whether we're being obedient to the Lord our God. That time is coming. It comes in the tribulation period. It takes the tribulation period for people to realize that we need God back to Zechariah as we have a couple minutes left to go Zechariah chapter 8 up to verse 11 11 to 13 is a unit Zechariah chapter 8 11 to 13 but now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days says the Lord of hosts for the seed shall be prosperous the vine will give its fruit The ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. It shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. Because the building of the temple indicates that the coming of Messiah is near. When they begin to build the temple, the hearts of the people are going to start turning to God like they haven't in recent times. Why is there so much protest in the land of Israel against the changes that have been proposed for their Supreme Court? Is because they're afraid that the government will start telling people that they need to be obedient to God's commandments. And the people are fighting it tooth and nail. And if you believe the news and the commentators, the United States is paying the protesters. I don't know that, but I've heard the reporters say it on many occasions. The temple means that Messiah will soon return. Go to Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. Satan does not want that temple to be rebuilt. He does not want the nation of Israel to turn to God with their whole heart. In Daniel 9.27. We read about the 70th set of years of the book of Daniel. Sometimes they call it Daniel's 70th week, but you have to understand it's a week of years. Then he, the false Messiah, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's for a seven-year period. That's the seven years we call the tribulation period. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Of course, you all realize he can't end it if it never began, right? So the temple will be rebuilt, the sacrifices will begin again, and the Antichrist or false Messiah will stop it, because he doesn't want the people to worship God. Instead, the false Messiah is going to go sit in the temple of God, and claim that he is God, and he is the one there to worship. And in verse 27, it refers to the wing, there's abomination, that's the, image that the false messiah has set up he and the false prophet for the people to worship Satan does not want the people to turn back and worship the Lord our God with that we've come to the end of our time we will pick up next week Lord willing in the book of Zechariah chapter 8 verse 14